Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. Super stoked today to talk about how to get a VC job and if you're a VC backable company, how to diversify your talent pool. And we're sitting uh, in one of the buildings at UC Berkeley, which is nostalgic for me, but for our guests as well, which we'll get into because this is the birthplace for the company and the people that we'll be talking about, Color Wave. But before we get too far down the road, let's kind of take a step back and get to know both of these folks today. And let's start with your childhood self and whether or not your childhood you would be friends with you today. We'll start with John, then we'll go to Leandro. So John Roussel, childhood me, yes. I think I have adapted. I grew up in kind of like a working middle class background. So I was attracted to a lot of like working class jobs. Like I wanted to be a firefighter when I was young. And then you go to high school and you realize, well, there's a world outside of that. Do you feel like you're fighting fires in a different way now? Is that oh, still that's a good question. I've definitely fought a lot of fires in different roles in my career. So my first job out of getting my MBA I was at a very small company. I was a fourth hire and we kind of scaled that business to have like 100 employees. But you don't get to 100 employees unless you're like doing a lot of the grunt work at the start. And I feel like that job in particular was a lot of firefighting. It was a lot of client relationship management, a lot of dealing with different personalities internally and externally. And yeah, there would be mornings you wake up at 5 a.m. and something is on fire and in a, in a different kind of sense. And it's your job as a leader of a team to put it out or figure it out. So less now at, at this age am I fighting fires. I think the fires I'm fighting are, are more with children. Now that I have small children, it's a lot of fire drills in that way now. I can only imagine. We're going to get into that. Same question for you. Hey, uh, Leandro. So like genuine, I'm the same OG. Um, I have a cheat code for this one because I have a 11 year old and a 13 year old and we are great friends and I see similarities and difference in each of them differently. But I would say my younger self, I didn't know the word entrepreneur, but I knew I wanted to own my own business. I was like creating restaurant menus for this imaginative restaurant. And I just knew like always been really like comfortable with just like ambiguity and like wandering around kind of deal. And as John could probably attest, I'm still very aloof in that way. Just like, let's see where I head next, where the road takes kind of deal. So I think the younger me would have a lot of fun still being on that journey. I love that. Sounds like both of you were somewhat ambitious kind of growing up, but a lot of people in our community are ambitious. They don't always find their way into technology or even VC. So could you talk a little bit more about when you started touching technology, kind of when that spark kind of hit you? The earliest moments would be great, but just talk about a time where you were like, okay, there's a world, there's a physical world, there's a built world, but there's also this digital thing and this opportunity to grow in those areas? Could you just talk about that? I know we're at UC Berkeley. I rarely also grew up in Berkeley, um, in South Berkeley specifically, which is a historically like African-American part of Berkeley. And growing up, I was always in some program. One was called MESA, like math, engineering, science, 
art maybe. So we would come up to UC Berkeley for like Saturday Academy and play around with like building structures. And so I knew that there was this digital world. First computer stuff, I remember like Oregon Trail. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is that fun, right? And obviously like gaming systems, like Nintendos and stuff like that. So that's when I knew like, oh, there's this world where you can like play around with intellectual property or create a world that doesn't exist in the physical. But I would say more professionally, when I was at UC Berkeley my senior year, I started a t-shirt company, Ragamuffin Clothing. And it was like, you know, political, like positive messages basically on a t-shirt. And I used to slang these shirts like out of the trunk of my car or at a festival, things like that. Very hand-to-hand combat. And I remember right before I moved to New England, because I was there for about seven years, um, I launched a website and we happened to get an article on Essence Magazine promoting the company. And my first aha moment was like, the article came out on Essence.com and then seeing hundreds of sales happen online. I'm like, y'all would have to go to like five festivals to make that happen and be there for like dozens and dozens of hours. And this happened overnight while I was sleeping. And I was like, uh, it's a different scalability with, with digital things. Um, so that was my first like moment where I just started, I tasted it. And I, I couldn't go back. I love that. I want to talk about two things, which may be taboo asking you two questions, but they're oh, kind good. of related. So I want to talk more about the program that got you involved, because I feel like that's a pivotal point for people in a lot of ways. You go to a program, but there were others who didn't end up where you are now. So yeah. what made it different for you? And then I got to ask you, this is going to be a weird question, but with the ragamuffin, it, it sounds like perfect product market fit because Berkeley, I know a lot of campuses are, but that probably sold well Hill because this is a this is a very political campus. Why is that? I'll start with this, the latter question. So why is Berkeley political? I think that, you know, Berkeley just as a as a, a city, as a place have always been like a haven for liberalism kind of deal. Right. So I'm growing up. I remember just, I would, you know, I, I grew up on Ashby, which is like a basically a highway kind of in Berkeley and go on my front porch and there's like herds of naked people running. They're protesting the right to like, why should I have to wear clothes? Right. So if there's a boundary like Berkeley is like, this is the place you can push it comfortably. Right. And that's why everyone from Malcolm X, Martin Luther King to Charles Manson kicked it at Berkeley, right? People were like bending and on the edges. It's just a safe place for them. In fact, like UC Berkeley has this little this little circle in the middle of campus. It's tiny, right? It's like maybe 10 inches like in diameter. And it says like, it's a sovereign place. Like if you're here, like America can't touch you, blah, blah, blah. No human could fit in it, but it's the ideal of like, this is a safe, this is a symbol of like, this is a safe place to be whomever you want to be, to challenge whatever you want to challenge and just not take systems and rules just as a given. We like to push it. And so that's why, you know, it's, I, I think it's just in the culture of, of what Berkeley is. And the shirts resonated for sure because of that, right? It, it actually birthed out of this Represent campaign we used to run as Alpha Phi Alpha and we would, it just said represent on the front, black shirt on the back. It had the percentage of black people at Cal. 
and it was a conversation starter. And I saw how that like message and campaign and the program behind that would just captivate people every year. And I was like, oh, there's something here. Like people want to see what they're wearing as like a canvas for a message they want to, you know, share with the world or make the world a better place or challenge something or have, a you know, some critical thinking about something. I think for me, I had a couple of privileges. One privilege was my mother was a teacher. She was actually my third grade teacher for like half the year. That had in large part to do with it. Like I had this household where learning and like aspiring was like, was like sacred. You know, this question is, you know, it, it conjures up the stuff that's at the core for like why we started Color Wave and why I started other programs because it's this very like thought of like, me being in that those programs with people, my peers, and me still knowing them and me knowing them going to the college in the same city and seeing how we departed on path was super heartbreaking for me. And it was just something I examined a great deal. So I knew how to interface with school well, right? Partially because I was always in a school, right? In the summer, I'm helping her set up her classroom. When I went to the school she worked at, I'm there to six because she's there to six, right? So I'm just like very comfortable with schools. I know that teachers are people. I know that it should be a relationship and it should be interactive. And a lot of my peers didn't know that. They kind of like saw it as like, that's the system. I don't really feel seen here. It's not for me. Even if they were just as bright as me or smarter than me at some point, just my comfort with this institution was like a privilege that a lot of them didn't have. And a lot of it was serendipity from that point on, right? Almost like I'm in the right environment to meet this person that led to me meeting this person that led to me learning this, that led to me getting access to this. That's solid. And having an educator in your family is definitely an advantage to have, but it's one that you all are sort of taking uh, and running with it. And now let's get into sort of the origin of Color Wave. We're sitting here sort of, I guess, in the birthplace where you said it was sort of incubated. Uh, so just talk about that. Like why, you know, why now? Why the moment? And, you know, where this idea came from? And we'll get into it, the impact later. But right now, like, what was the purpose? Why? And you're telling me that you didn't see anybody else doing something like it, was unique about it. Let's get into it. Yeah. So for me, kind of from a personal standpoint, you know, the this was during the year of 2020. So we had a lot of things going on. The pandemic started. You had Breonna Taylor. You had George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. It was just a lot of things happening all at once. And I think a lot of people were grappling, including ourselves, with there's so much injustice and equality in society, where's one piece of society that I can target and change the narrative, change what's happening for the future. Surprisingly, this came out of kind of nowhere. So he was already working with a group of the board members and essentially they needed a leader to kind of lead this effort around increasing access to the innovation economy. So he brought the idea to me and, you know, it kind of just all clicked at once. It was like, okay, I want to do something entrepreneurial. This feels like I can build something. It's combining all these things that I want to do. So within a matter of like two or three conversations, I decided to quit my job um, with a baby on the way. So I had a baby coming in December of that year. And then I kind of just dove right in and kind of took the, the reins of it and said, all right, this is how we need to design the program. 
this is what we need to focus on. This is the name. It was a lot of things that were happening all at once. And I think that for me, what was the decision maker was like, this is doing similar work that I've done in the past of increasing access. We're just moving it to technology and making sure that these communities have access to, you know, jobs that are meaningful, uh, careers that can transform their their personal as well as their families' lives. There's there's so much upside in this space, and I feel like at the time we our communities didn't fully see that, um, and that was one of the things that really drew me to kind of take the reins here. Okay, well, pull pull back the curtains now a little mm-hmm. bit. What is Color Color Wave? What are you doing? And if you can bridge the gap between your previous work and today, because you know. This is a good year for you. You're getting a lot more press, mm-hmm. a lot more people seeing mm-hmm. what you're doing. If this is an introduction, what is Color Wave? Yeah, so Color Wave is an organization that's designed to increase access to opportunity for underrepresented individuals in the innovation economy. So essentially what we are doing is taking people who have transferable skills, interests, and working in early stages of technology companies and providing them with the kind of understanding, the network to be successful, both to find opportunities, full-time opportunities for themselves, but building a network that will propel them in the space in the future. So the way that we do that is through a fellowship program, which we offer for free for underrepresented professionals where... It kind of it's an eight week program that takes them through. This is how the innovation economy works. This is how it's funded. This is what it's like to work at an early stage tech company, both as an early employee or as a founder. And then we we partner with uh, venture funds and their portfolio companies to essentially provide opportunities for those individuals who want to transition to uh, early stage company. We look at, you know, how are you communicating? So we bring in professors from Stanford and Harvard and they talk about effective ways of communicating and how do you tell your story in a compelling way in a short amount of time? We bring in people who are people leaders at um, tech companies who talk about how do you adjust your resume, your LinkedIn to, to thrive within the space and to get looks that you need to ultimately secure an opportunity? And then we also talk about compensation, which is something that we don't talk about a lot in our households because our families aren't used to, to negotiating a stock option package. So we do some of those things that aren't even taught at a university, but are essential to like thriving in the space. And ultimately, we want people to get full-time opportunities. That's kind of our primary goal. But we are also kind of doing, I think, two other things, expanding the network. So people have a peer network that they can now navigate their careers with, as well as a network of industry people that when they want that opportunity or they're looking to secure a future opportunity, they now have people that they can actually reach out on LinkedIn or, or email or Slack And they have those conversations to move that forward. And I think the other piece that we're doing for people is showing you like, this is the universe that your career can be. So you can go work at a startup. Your startup can do really well. You can go found your own company or you can be an angel investor. Like there's so many different things that you can do. But we, because of our, you know, some of our closed networks, we typically don't see all of the different permutations that can happen here. And I think that's one of the magical things that is happening in our program. I love that. Why would people want to do that? And I say that because, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've run across this as well. Like you said, we have a mindset, go to college, get mm-hmm. a job, 
you know, maybe change jobs <laughs> if I want a different one, but it's all sort of in that same sphere. Yep. And startup life is a very different, different journey and path for people. Mm-hmm. Why would people want to do that? And given our current environment, I mean, we're sitting on Berkeley's campus. I don't know if, you know, the students are going off into the professional tracks and consulting or if they're like, you know, why would I want to work for the man? But how do you make sense of that when you're talking to people where this is a new paradigm for them? Yeah. So I I think one of the things we talk about in the actual programming is like understanding your risk tolerance and your career trajectory. So the risk tolerance piece is, you know, startups there's somewhere around an estimate of a 90% failure rate. But even though startups fail, people gain valuable. When you look at most kind of startup founders, they become successful in future ventures or worldly successful because of the trials and tribulations they had working at an organization that maybe didn't do well. Jack Dorsey is, is an example. He, f- he founded a company before Twitter or the idea for Twitter wasn't the same idea he had. And they kept iterating on that. And then he was able to bring that to life. Twitter didn't work out for him, so he found a square. Like, because you're in this space, you're learning, you're like accelerating your learning from a career standpoint that you really don't get in a lot of larger organizations. So I think that's the career trajectory side. But then you start to, I guess, to some of our stories, there's a level of curiosity that guided us to where we're at. And I feel like there's no place in our economy that, you know, allows you to test your curiosity more than an innovation economy. One of the things our program tries to teach you is there are some markers or things that you can observe or research that will show you, okay, this venture may be a little more successful than trying this one where it's not going so well or the founders don't have a great track record or their investors maybe don't have a great track record of investing in in world-changing companies. So we bring some of that kind of due diligence to making a career choice in this space. There could be some some opportunities here where you, you take a job and it doesn't work out, but we also are showing people like, okay, that's not the end of the world. And what did you learn and how can you then transfer that to your next opportunity? To so. jump on that, um, the things that bubble up for me when I think about the fellows is often they want to have like greater ownership and impact in their work and in their role. At the end of the day, like we're humans and emotions is a big part of being human, right? So people are coming like, even if I'm at this big company, like I feel like it's very narrow, my responsibility, my ownership, my impact. And they want more of that, right? You know, to feel whole, fulfilled, just like as a human being. And I think the other thing that is kind of implicit in what John is saying, but was explicit in the founding of ColorWave was like money, like wealth generation, right? And if you really look at all the different levers you have, startups and being an entrepreneur is like a real way to go from 100,000 to a million, millions kind of deal, right? And it's it's a unique pathway to, to do that. So if you kind of get in that ecosystem, you know, sooner or later, like you may hit kind of deal. And I think they're aware of that, you know, like we've all stayed in Airbnbs and things like that. And I was just at one and it's funny because like the person who owned it was a successful, you know, CEO of like two startups and then they buy these vacation homes. And, and I had access to that, right? I had some mentors who were like, I got, a, you know, some houses here, you know, Martha's Vineyard. I got some houses here. And I'm like, 
Y'all don't see a lot of that from people who just like worked a regular job kind of deal. And we kind of open that up to say that's real. The last thing I'll say is that working at a big company, it gives the illusion of security. But I've been the one in the room with names on the Excel sheet. You have no idea we're talking about it. And in 10 minutes, we had to make the rough decision that you're not going to be here. So startup, at least like when you're part of a small team, there's still a level of like, you're seeing all the facts. There's a level of like transparency of being more in control of your destiny. So it's kind of like those factors where people are like, yo, I think I want to kind of jump into this other lane to, you know, see what kind of impact I could do, how much wealth I could generate. That makes total sense. But I want to push this a little bit further because, you know, I might be listening to this and saying, yeah, that sounds good. And I'm all in on that tomorrow (laughs) or next week or next year or later on down the year. I'm not going to make a two week decision to change my entire, you know, landscape and course of my life. Why should people do it now and should they do it now or is there some type of planning process that goes into it maybe could you speak to that and if the fellowship touches on that i'm not a now type of person i'm a optionality type of person right i'm a one you should have the knowledge so you know what your options are right so if you think like i'm working at this job you know where you're going right you know where the ceiling is maybe you know what like the breadth is of how much you're going to make there where you're going to go next you know how you feel about the culture of that job, you that's a known, right? You should know all this other green field too, right? So that's what's important to me. It's always like when I ran college prep programs for my students, like have options. We could talk all day about the one college you want to go to, but let's let's land on having options. And the more options you have, that's leverage. Me and John randomly last week were having a conversation just about the serendipity in our careers and in most people's careers, right? So by doing color wave now, you will potentially have the serendipity of like, oh shoot, I met the chief fill in the blank for this company. I really clicked with them. I had a one-on-one with them. Now I have this relationship to where I can, you know, de-risk this for myself or learn even more about this field, you know, and, and, and they become a mentor of mine. And maybe that's when it becomes safe for me to bridge to the next thing. For me, it's not a, a rush at all, right? It's not like, that's bad, this is good. It's kind of like, yo, you should know about these doors because I didn't know that that door existed. And then once I opened it, I'm like, wait, what can happen? I can fail and then have a million dollar opportunity as an outcome of that kind of deal. And then, or I could win and I could generate this, or I could now work at this VC plus do this. You know, it just opens up your world. I would say 95% of the people who do our program have a job. So it's not people that are kind of unemployed and are in a crunch to find a job. And I think what we're trying to do kind of to Leandro's point is show them this is all of the, this is the universe that, that exists and equip you with the tools of like, okay, if I want to make this jump to an organization, let's say I'm coming from Google and I want to go to an earlier stage AI company, for example, I can look at their investors. I can go talk to somebody who works at the company. Like we're, we're creating the package of like, you know how to make that transition 
at, with the, the most due diligence that you can do to feel comfortable making that transition. So we don't necessarily put pressure on people. We allow them to kind of have their own timeline. But our goal is to kind of show them this is this is what exists in this space. And if you do want to transition here, this is how we would advise you to do this in a way that de-risk it, de-risks the opportunity for yourself. That makes sense. We've been talking a lot about the fellows, but there's sort of another side of this, which are the companies and the people in the Mm -hmm. ecosystem who are also actively looking for talent. So could you talk about what their experience is like and why somebody who is listening to this attached to a fund or an early stage startup would choose and direct their attention toward Color Wave instead of elsewhere? Yeah. So I think about kind of some of the narratives that are told in this space by like an investor, for example. Right. So one of the selling points to it could be to your LPs or to different audiences is like we're an engine of job growth. And when you look at the job growth, historically, that's typically been only certain communities benefit from that job growth, both whether it be as a founder, they're only getting the money. Or when you look at the early stage employees, they tend to look homogenous in some ways. So I think what the the benefit that we bring to the space for both funds and their portfolio companies is we provide kind of a resource in a community that if you want to diversify your pipeline and you want to, you know, build a company with that in mind as you kind of grow. You, have, you now have a resource in our organization that's able to do that. Most of the funds that we work with, there's some kind of priority, whether it be at the funding level or the actual employee level, to get more opportunities to get diverse talent into their companies earlier in their growth story. So that's one of the like selling points for the funds that we work with is like we care about this mission. We care about providing access to these communities, to these growing companies. Let's figure out what's the right way to work together. Now, that's not every fund, but I would say that's a marker of some of the funds that we we work with. Is there some kind of mission or, or a cultural alignment with our mission? And can this propel our community to have access to industries that they wouldn't have access to? I think of like, you know, one of our funders, for example, Inside Partners is a one of the largest funders um, and investors in SaaS businesses. SaaS businesses are not something that we're talking about at the dinner table or amongst our peer networks, but we partner with organizations like that, one, because they have such deep expertise in that marketplace, but then they've also developed a uh, what they call a center of excellence for their companies around helping them think about how they build their companies with diversity in mind. So those are just markers of like organizations and what they're doing to kind of change the narrative here. And we just kind of fold into some of their efforts that they're doing. We've been successful with a few funds where the fund has made an introduction to a CEO. The CEO has found out about our organization. That's led them to interview six, seven, seven people and then hire three or four of them as like early employees that have control over the direction of the company that are getting promotions that are kind of in places like this match that never would have happened. We're facilitating that. And that's kind of what we want to continue to like figure out at scale of how do we do that? How do we get people that care about this, but may not have the resources and bring those two communities together to, to bring forward the change of why we started this organization is to get more of us at the seat earlier on. As soon as you said that, I'm thinking, where do I have to be? to find the fellowship 
and leverage it and use it to be a leader in a company mm-hmm. that I met through the program. So what is the profile of the people who are coming in and why, you know, I'm particularly thinking about people who might disqualify themselves yep, yep. or maybe good candidates, but don't view themselves that way. Yeah. So in terms of kind of the actual raw numbers, the person that comes to us on average has six years of work experience. So somebody who's, you know, just a little bit far further away from their undergrad experience, maybe has one or two jobs, has some very credible functional experience. So you may have worked in finance in your previous gig. You may have worked in HR. So I would say 80% of the people that we take on are non-technical. We don't require people to have a technical background. We do encourage people because it's easier to help find that match. But we're taking people, when you look at kind of an organization as it grows, you know, engineering, tech, Those product roles are 20 to 25 percent of the company. Another 75 percent are all these other different roles, HR, finance, marketing. So there is like a large opportunity for people who have transferable skills to join these companies. They just don't know where do I start? Where do I start? How do I figure this industry out? And I think that's what we come to the table providing. So we've had people come from, you know, the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks of the world. We've had people that have come from and want to go into the startup space. We've had people come from higher education, have no way of like, I want to work in tech, but I don't know where to start. And we're like the their secret, the cheat code for them to figure out really fast, this is how you do that. This is how you do that really effectively. And, and we provide the support to help you negotiate your package in a way where you're not getting taken advantage of, right? So we're kind of like the universe and the program that provides them with like a, the, the fastest track to really understand where to get it, where to fit in here and how to have support in, in your transition in the space. What we're going to offer you is a bunch of access, right, to where you can actually talk to those companies as well. So like to your question specifically, I'm sure I know the company you're talking about, but it's happened a few times where there is a very like motivated and eager CEO who's like, I want to get this right from the ground floor, right? And I also, and, and that was the next thing I wanted to add about the the VCs and the companies that work well with ColorWave. There is on some level for certain VCs and certain companies a knowledge that like they perpetuated unfair system, right? I've had companies say, yo, I'm I'm about to go IPO and everyone who's going to benefit from this looks like me. They're not, they're not diverse and they feel bad about that. Right. And they like, well, I can't turn back the hands of time, but how could we ensure it doesn't happen for the next company or for my next venture, et cetera, et cetera. Wait a minute. You're saying that really happens. I know I asked you this It's a real thing. thing. It's it's not, I don't want to like talk it up. Like it's the master narrative, right? But there, there is a, what I found by being like a, we're a pretty like non-judgmental meet you where you are type of organization, right? And it's very friendly for someone to like partner and, just say, well, well, let me be a part of this and see how it goes. And in that, it opens a level of transparency that I think is unique. And genuinely, I think there's a lot of people who are like, yo, I F this up. Like when I was starting this company, you know, I went to these three places, didn't work. So in I, meanwhile, I had inbound because I, I raised a lot of money. I'm popular. I had inbound 
of all these applications that were qualified, talked about firefighting from a startup. I took the inbound kind of deal. I don't know what night it is. Maybe it's once a quarter there's a night you like, you're kicking yourself. And it's not just benevolence. You know, people are logical. People are smart. They're like, dang, if I was more diverse in this department or this department, I would have been able to break into this market and have a even faster growing company, even just in dollar terms. Like where could I have been more successful kind of deal? Diversity like comes up often. It's like, uh, ah, that's why we don't, we, we built that in the way to where it was super biased and we got all this bad press and, and it's not benevolent and our stock went down. <laughs> you know what I mean? If we have more people at the table and, you know, I just don't think it's most of these companies are VCs chief priority, but it definitely is a priority. And the ones that opt in the color wave, it probably ranks a little higher on their priority list. Yeah, I, I genuinely think like there's folks who are like, I got it wrong. I feel bad about it. How can we participate in a system that's getting it right? And Color Wave looks like their cheat code for that. Well, we've been really talking it up, and for good reason. You all have had results, traction. I mean, you're getting people jobs. That is not an easy thing to do, especially in such a niche area and industry, but it's, part, it's built into your business model. Relationships are growing. Like I said, it's been a good year from a press standpoint. Mm -hmm. But has there been a moment that's been a little bit tougher than you're making it seem? Have there been any low moments where you said, you know what, um, I'm thinking about, you know, when I was a kid and the people were running down the street naked. I feel naked right now because there are things coming at me that I don't feel, you know, sort of clothed for, or I'm going in there and I'm fighting fires and I don't have all my equipment. Are there moments that you can think about since you started Color Wave that you had to endure or get over? And if you could, could you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, we're a startup just like any other organization. So I think 2021 was like the apex of like, we had this thing in our mind, we put it out into the public and it took off like, I guess, gangbusters and people really found a lot of value in it. So 2021 was like a high for us. It was also, I think, in terms of the market, the market was still humming at that point. It was like people are getting money. If you have a startup, it's like easy to kind of navigate the f fundraising piece. And then 2022 hit. And I think that's where things started to slow down, where it's easier to support an organization like ours that works with younger kids. So if you work with, you know, teenagers, middle school students, even undergrads, that makes a little more sense. But I feel like there is a gap in the philanthropic space around like post-secondary navigating your career, which is I, I feel like we're, we're providing like a program, one that doesn't exist in this space, but like broadening the issue of like, after I've graduated college, if I'm the first in my family that's went to college, I'm still out here navigating this on my own. Like there are uh, a limited amount of programs that help you figure it out. MLT is obviously one that people talk about a lot. But when you look at technology in, in, in particular and in the innovation economy and entrepreneurship, there aren't a lot of programs specifically focused for people after they've graduated college or grad school to navigate that space and navigate it in a, in a way where you're doing it with your peers. Um, and that's like the biggest thing of I even think about myself in my own career. Pretty much every decision I've made has just been me kind of like 
doing it on my own. Yeah, you may have a few mentors here and there, but unless you have a very robust network and really do a lot of research, you're kind of just making a lot of your career decisions on gut and, and seeing if it works out or not. And, you know, that doesn't always work out in our favor, but it also doesn't, in my opinion, change the wealth narrative that we have out here of like, okay, I'm, I may go work this job and it's providing steady income to Leandro's point earlier, but is this going to transform my family's wealth trajectory for years to come? Or am I thinking about how I make my money, whether it be in RSUs or stock options and how that may open up doors for me and my family in the future. So I think the, the hardest, the harder part about that is like, you have to find a philanthropist that really understands and cares about it. And, and we found a few of those folks, but it's still on our, our kind of list of priorities to galvanize that community around what we're doing. So both of you have mentioned family, children, either you know at the beginning of the company or, or well into their, their tween age years. How has your experience at Color Wave or in this space since you made the jump, the leap, earlier or later in life into entrepreneurship, how has that positively impacted your family life? Yes, you're building, you know, generational wealth for your family, but has it impacted your work and vice versa? And, you know, perhaps left unsaid in this conversation so far is that there's diversity within diversity, you know, gender, uh, et cetera, when it comes to placing, you know, more women, uh, other identities into these groups. Could you talk about um, the success of the program in that area and how your personal and, and professional lives have been reinforcing each other? Yeah, for sure. John, you know probably the statistic on women. What yeah, so we have roughly 60% of our participants are women. So we skew more to Black and Latinx women who do our program. I, I think it's some of it is, I think, a byproduct of who's getting secondary degree, like the education system where there are more um, women who are getting degrees and in the workforce. Um, there actually was a CNN article that talked about the changing dynamics between women and men in the household this weekend. We want to support, like, we obviously value women and their perspective. And that's, they're kind of like the double minority in this space. They're not re well represented as er in tech and just early stage tech in general. And if you're a person of color, it's also harder to navigate. So we're happy that that is a byproduct of what our program is doing is getting more black and brown women into this space. But then there's a flip side of this that we also care about is like, you know, the, the men there's like those numbers could go in opposite directions in the future where we may have 70, 80 percent women and less men. So we're try we're still figuring out and trying to uncover why we don't have more of a balance right now. Yeah. For for, um, you know, the family question, I think that like so my the last company that I, I sold, I was the CEO in Founder and I started that in 2015 and. I would say the benefit was like the flexibility, right? Of like, you know, when you own your own company, you have the, you know, largely the autonomy to be able to set your own schedule. So I would say right now I'm in kind of this phase where I could be at my son's soccer, my daughter's softball, you know, I could cook dinner lots of nights kind of deal. So I would say that's been a major positive. I was putting on like real clothes today and my daughter was like, where are you going? And I was like, I'm a, like, I'm doing, I'm filming this podcast. 
And she was like, not for real. You know, just like she thought, I, could, I you know, I joke a lot, but, you know, I've been interviewed before and stuff like that. And I think for them, they see like it's exposure, right? It opens up the world of like, wait, what? So I think on the low, they kind of like my dad is cool. They be, they be Googling me sometimes when they be at school with their friends. Like, look, he did this cool thing. So I think it opens up their world and they understand that like things are less uh, kind of fixed and binary, but like you, know, you kind of can create your path and your reality. Um, and, and that's been a positive. My wife is going to hear this. So she, you should know that early on in my startup career, when I was like number two at this e-commerce company, I was not flexible. It was all in. I might get a call and we fly into Chicago like right now. And we were, we had babysitters galore to kind of help us do all of that. So it kind of comes in waves, but I would say those are like the positives that you can create something you can dream and like make a plan and like put something out there in the world um and just have a lot of agency over what you want to do with your day with your year with your career um so that probably be the big word like they you should have agency on what you want to do have you been to a bring your parent to school day have you participated in that yet um to some degree for sure i'm trying to think explicitly like I remember I I was like the the speaker at my niece's middle school like graduation as an example and ironically the CTO of Pandora Music was there because his daughter went there and he ended up becoming an advisor to my startup he's like my daughter said you spoke at her thing (laughs) so it's just it's a small world like that but yeah I've, I've spoke at different things but you know they go to Berkeley Public Schools and it's a lot of cool parents there. They they good. Like like uh, some of their schoolmates. Like one guy was a speaker at mm-hmm. Color Wave. He was the like chief communication officer at Square, as an example. And we were at the fundraiser together at the school. He liked my shoes. We started talking. We became each other's first, you know, like dad friend kind of deal at the school. So it's it's some it's some cool parents out there. That's a cool part of being in the Bay Area, right? Of like. There, there are people who are, you know, working at the highest level of the startup ecosystem. And when you get to it, man, like they're, they're regular people, not all, but some are like, they're regular people just trying to connect. Like, hey, let's go get some coffee. Let's, you know, it's in the pandemic. He came through to my backyard and we just had... I don't know. I think we had champagne because I just sold my company. But it was like in the pandemic. So we were like socially distanced <laughs> in a muddy uh, backyard. Me and my wife definitely had to do the thing where when I was starting Hinge 2, my last startup, you, you broke for a minute, right? Because like as a, as a startup, it's kind of like your salary matches your product market fit and your fundraising kind of deal. So when we're figuring it out, my salary is figuring it out too, right? So, so like, you know, she was like, well, I'll consult here. And it just kind of bounces out. And it's just like, we're making it work. Sometimes it's what I'm doing that's hitting, that's paying a lot of the bills. Sometimes it's like, it's on her. Sometimes it's a combination. Uh, but yeah, I definitely needed that partnership i would echo that sentiment like having the advisor the kind of confidant to 
talk talk through all of these challenges that you're going through that you may not be able to talk to with somebody at the company or who may be an investor of yours. I think the financial piece is real. So, you know, I'm probably making 50% of what I could make in the market, but I have to have that conversation with my wife. Like you need to be the breadwinner and I appreciate you for that. And because of that, I will take on a lot more responsibility to balance that. So I think it's, it has probably smoothed this experience over for me in that I have somebody that I can rely upon both from a, a, a kind of confidant standpoint, but also financially, we can have those conversations and, and do what's best for our family. So I, I think if I didn't have that, that would have made this journey probably a little more tougher. That's real. It's a hot topic today, you know, relationships uh, and how they work in business and play and the choices that people make early in their lives. So I appreciate you being uh, upfront about that. I spent a summer uh, at UC Berkeley at uh, the Goldman School of Public mm-hmm. Policy in the PPIA program, seven weeks some of the best weeks of my entire life. I loved it. I mean, that's where I got to study. This is 10 years um, old. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it has been a journey ever since then. Uh, we like to know what's happening sort of on the ground. I think it's cool that we're in the birthplace of Color Wave here. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about what you're most excited about in specifically this Berkeley area startup scene? And for people who just think the Silicon Valley means Northern California, could you talk about any unique aspects of the Berkeley startup ecosystem culture and I know that it's strong because last fall I was here at the Haas School of, of Business and they had the Climate to Market or the C2M conference, which was dope. And just seeing how the community came together specifically at Berkeley, not San Francisco, not Mountain View or Palo Alto, but here in Berkeley. So what are you most excited about here and what's unique about Berkeley's startup ecosystem? Yeah, I think for me, this has kind of generally been like on the forefront of tech technology innovation for, you know, probably the last 30 or 40 years um, because we have a world-class CS department and then we have all of these different other areas of study where we're really strong in. I would say some of the things that are bubbling up, obviously AI, I think you went to an AI event with the house fund recently, so you could share more about that. I think the next iteration of Web3, like we went through this phase of crypto and NFT and that seems to like have dipped so what is the next iteration of that going to be? I'm also curious about climate tech. Our governor is really focused on, you know, rolling back some of the policies around climate and, and making sure that our state is like at the forefront of climate preservation. And where does that go next? You know, there's talk about carbon capture. I think I heard on NPR before I got here, they're trying to figure out how to build the electric grid to support 13 million electric cars on the road, which is like 15x of what we have on the current road right now. So there's a lot of like change that I think just living in the state and being in the Bay Area in particular allows you to see like where the future is headed before everybody else. I would say the one thing about the first question about what makes this difference, specifically Berkeley, I've lived in D.C. before. And what I always vividly remember about D.C. was the first question you get asked at a party is, what do you do? And it's like, you know, that defines how people treat you and the interaction that you're going to have. Whereas I feel like when you come to a place like Berkeley, it's like people want to get to know you as a person before they care about what you do for a living. And I think that organic type of interaction between people has made this place pretty magical and make people want to stay here and do all of the great things that they do here in particular. 
So there's a VC, the house fund that only invests in Berkeley founders. I'm a part-time partner for that fund. So I get an up-close and personal view of how legendary the like CS department in business school is. I think it's something like Berkeley is like number two in startup founders who become unicorns or create unicorns. You know, Berkeley is a very like humble or like decentralized place. I think it's because like a public university is super big. They're not always kind of like engineering their brand and things like that. So it kind of goes unnoticed kind of deal. But one of the things the house fund always does is it, you know, behooves them to catalog. Like that's a Berkeley founder. That's a Berkeley founder. Like Databricks, this company, OpenAI has a like Berkeley co-founder on it. And just like cataloging these folks and like basically attributing it to being a part of this institution. There's kind of like concerted effort there. They just launched like the biggest like AI accelerator now. Like if 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 you're creating an AI company and there's one Berkeley founder, you can apply to this thing with the house fund, you're gonna get a million dollars and you're gonna have access to these mentors who would be like, I've been doing AI since like the 80s kind of deal, right? So like I'm I'm a professor in it and I'm the big dog to all these companies. Like I'm helping advise them kind of deal. And it's like a plethora of those people who would be there to kind of like advise you. You know, for me, it comes down to like freedom. And Do you feel like you've had that? I mean, you had an exit. People want to know what is that like post-exit? Do you feel like you have freedom? You're still striving? For? What does that mean to you? Yeah. You know, I think well, one curse of human nature is probably like insatiability. But like, for sure, went from renting my Berkeley house to buying that house from the landlord, right? Went from definitely always being month to month to having like, extreme cushion and then there's like this other cushion of like relationships and access to where it's like it's good kind of deal like i could send some text messages for my next company and i could get two million probably really really quickly that feels like a a blessing it feels like definitely freedom and i know there's like another tier of freedom but I, i try to be balanced with that and not like set up too many crazy expectations that's excellent so Last question, well, penultimate question. What is the most valuable thing that Color Wave does for its fellows? And you could also talk about the most valuable thing for the funds and the companies as well. But you've said this in many ways throughout this conversation, but what would you say succinctly is the most valuable thing that you do for uh, your fellows? Just being an accelerant to transitioning to the innovation economy for, for uh, communities of color. We kind of have the relationships, the access, the education behind it, uh, all in one place where you don't have to do all of this searching and research on your own. You have our materials, our network to help figure that out all in one place. And then the other piece is just being like kind of powerful community to help propel your career forward. So thinking about the peer, the industry side, you have access, all the access you need to keep moving forward in terms of your career and economic mobility. And you don't get a lot of these programs that are available for free. My mentors, the k will say that genius is evenly distributed by zip code, but opportunity is not. So we bring opportunity to their doorstep. Uh, the fellows are geographically like all over. They're not in the buzz cities, 
right? And those folks just very practically don't feel like they have access to the opportunities of these startups, right? They feel very like locked out. Like, I don't even know where to start kind of deal, right? So those, you know, when you ask, why do they come and stuff like that? It's that, like, I literally like, I'm not in this bubble where I see all these startups raising money and scaling and exiting. I have no idea. And we are a place where they could come and they can have direct access to those opportunities and people. And, you know, from there, it's like, get out the way. They're already geniuses, right? They're already ambitious. They're already on their way. We're just opening the door to like these eight opportunities. That is powerful. And this has been a very illuminating conversation. And I'm certainly like, as you all are talking, there are people who are bouncing in my mind in a lot of different ways who really should hear about what you all are doing or who have asked me if I know anybody who does what you all are doing. So I'm happy to to make those connects. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you, to find you? I know you're active on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. but what is the best way for people to reach out to each of you? And what's the best way to do that if there is a wrong way to do that? Yeah, I don't think there's really a a wrong way. I think most of the people affiliated with our organization have a pretty open door. So I think LinkedIn is probably the best way if people enjoy meeting one-on-one, I, I have a calendar that I share with folks that want to meet and talk. I would say just text me, 555. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just kidding. Leandrew Robinson. Leandrew R. Um, at LinkedIn is probably the best way. I'm definitely, like, approachable. Um, now we'll turn into, like, you know, probably an email or quick phone call or something like that. And I think on ColorWave's website, is it? Like, can they always apply? Yeah, so you, there? if you are interested in doing a program, our next official program will start in the fall. So we have an interest form on our website. It's thecolorwave.org. And we update that pretty frequently. That sounds good. Like I said, this has been a great conversation. And I agree with you. It's much needed um, in the space. People are talking about it. You all are doing it. And you probably run into people who are like, I want to do these things, but I can't be that person. And it's it's nice to have somebody you can just kind of offload that responsibility onto. It's in good hands. So with that any parting words for the audience before we before we depart? I think the biggest parting words for me is like, we belong here. And I would say, I'm saying people of color belong and, and need a seat at the table. And we're making sure every day that that is a reality for us. I think that's kind of the biggest message for me. That was wonderful. Um, I would say you, you asked a question about how to reach out. I would say actually do. And that would be my message. Actually do some small thing to like further whatever dream or next door you want to open up, like you'd be surprised of, I tweeted a big investor before they favored it. And we met in person three weeks later. And that led to me raising probably like a million dollars from them. Right. So you'd be surprised just like reach out. And I would just say people are more helpful and open and forgiving and humble than you would imagine has been my lived experience in the innovation economy. What a testimony. Thank you both for coming in, inviting us into your incubation space. And we look forward to seeing where it takes it from there. Until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed 
today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.